How are we doing this morning, church? Good. I'm Ryan, one of the elders here at Redemption Parker, and I have the great privilege and honoring, uh, honor of opening God's word with us, with all of you this morning, and seeing this massive transition in the book of Acts, or the book of Romans, which we've been in for now a while. Um, I am in the book of Romans this morning, Romans chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, turn there with me. Um, as you do... I'm going to share a quick story with you. Um, so this past June, my wife and I celebrated 10 years of marriage. Um, and we had the opportunity to go to Hawaii for a trip. And it was the most relaxed we had been over the past 10 years. Partially because we left our little natives at home. And it was amazing sitting on the beach, relaxing, talking, having full conversations that were not interrupted. It was great. Um, I knew one thing as I was going to Hawaii, the one thing I wanted to do was I wanted to go surfing and my wife wanted to sit on the beach and read books. And so most of our trip, especially in the afternoons, it looked like that. So about halfway through the trip, I had an opportunity to go, um, out surfing. I was out there for, for several hours and the area that I was, that I was in, I'd never surfed on top of a reef before, but the reef was, it stretched about a quarter mile off the beach and all the way into the beach. So it was all like razor sharp rock. So it made me a little nervous, but I'd gotten pretty used to it. And so I'd been out there on the water for several hours and I'm not used to being on swimming around the water for several hours. Colorado doesn't provide very many opportunities for me to do that. And so I was out there paddling and I thought, man, I'll catch one more wave and then just kind of head in. And this next wave came, I started paddling for it and it wrecked me. Like it threw me down and I'm thinking, oh, for sure, I'm going to nail my head on this razor sharp reef rock. And thankfully I did not, I'm still here. Um, but I got put into this spin cycle. If you've ever been clobbered by a wave, you know that you just go upside down all over the place. You don't know which direction is up. And so as I'm, as I'm trying to figure out which direction's up, I like everything's dark around me and I'm under the water for probably about a minute. I finally come up, catch, catch my breath to only find another wave come and crash down on me. And so I literally feel like I'm drowning at this time. And for most of you guys in here, you may know that feeling when both your hamstrings lock up and you can't move and you feel totally paralyzed. And that, that's what happens. So I feel like I'm literally about to drown in the middle of the ocean and and I finally st- swim to the side where the waves aren't breaking. I realized that my board has disconnected from my leg and it is rolling around on this rock about a quarter mile away. And I am stressed, I'm frustrated, I'm tired, and I'm thirsty, and I literally feel like I am going to drown. And it was like a, a moment of desperation where I didn't know what to do. And I, I, was, I was remembering that that moment as we've been studying through the book of Romans, getting to Romans chapter three, verse 20, which Mark finished at last week and feeling, wow, there's a lot of weight that all of us are under when we consider the the message that Paul has preached to us so far in the book of Romans. We feel like we are burdened under the weight and drowning under the weight of man's sin and God's wrath towards sin. Like, listen to these words. No one is righteous, not even one. Their mouths are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The reality is, and Mark and Rick have touched on this the past couple weeks, 
It's that God loves you too much for you to believe, for you to think that there is no problem in the world, that there is not brokenness and pain and suffering in this world as a result of sin. And Paul, Paul loves you and I too much for us to think that we are good enough to stand before a holy and righteous God. In the mid 1900s, there was a a theologian and philosopher named, named Francis Schaeffer. And Francis was once asked, and this will be on the screen here, I think. Yep. Um, So what would you do if you met a really modern man on a train and you just had an hour to talk to him about the gospel? And Francis responded, I would spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative to really show him his dilemma that he is morally dead. Then I'd take 10 to 15 minutes to preach the gospel. I believe that much of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear simply because we are too anxious to get to the answer without having a man realize the real cause of his sickness, which is true moral guilt in the presence of God. And that's what Paul's been getting at this whole time in the book of Romans. He wants us to recognize our true moral guilt before a holy God. And he wants his whole audience to be there before he gives you something that you're not even ready for, that we are not ready for. And so the question that I want us to answer this morning for each one of us is how can man be made right before God? And I don't know if you're like me, but I grew up in a Christian home from the day I was born. I was in Sunday morning service. I grew up in a Christian culture and the Christian culture I grew up in did not beg me to ask that question of how can man be made right with God? God, how can I be made right before you? I didn't have to ask that question because everybody assumed I was a Christian. Everybody assumed I believed what the Bible said. But this question is so pivotal because throughout history, men and women everywhere have asked this question. There'll be a list up on the screen of, of stories from the Bible starting in, and these are just a few examples. There's tons more throughout scripture. Starting in Job 9, Job asked the Lord, how can man be in the right before God? Bildad, one of Job's friends, asked, how then can man be in the right before God? Moving to the gospels, the crowds in John 6 and Luke 3. What then shall we do? How can we be saved? The rich young ruler in Matthew 19, what must I do to be saved? The listeners at Pentecost at Peter's sermon in Acts 2, what shall we do to be saved? Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts 22, what shall we, what shall I do, Lord? In the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer to that question is in this next section of scripture that we are about to read. Like, like nothing else that we have ever seen before, Martin Luther he says that Romans 3, 21 through 26 is the chief point of the entire Bible. That's a bold statement to say, because you know that this is littered with God's, that this is God's word and it's littered with good truth. But Martin Luther is saying that this is the chief point of the whole Bible. He would go on to say that this passage played a major role in sparking the Protestant Reformation. So if you have a Bible, open with me to Romans chapter 3, 21 through 31, and we'll read it together. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God, of the God, of the, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Three major themes that we will see in this passage, as we begin to unpack how a sinner is made right before God, are that we receive a righteousness that is from God, that we are justified by God, and we have faith in God. We don't make it too far in this passage before the good news is available to us. Actually, two words in, but now. But now, this massive transition from where Paul was and where Paul is now going. One commentator comments on these two words and says, After backing all of sinful humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, into a totally dark and seemingly inescapable corner of God's wrath, Paul begins to open the window of divine grace and let in the glorious light of salvation through the righteousness that God himself has provided. See, this righteousness that comes from God, we know of God's righteousness. We know of God's righteousness. We've seen it throughout scripture that God's righteousness is often defining of his character, of who God is. We know that God is righteous. We know he is holy. We know he is just that he is the highest standard for what is good and moral. He is the source and measure of all things. And he, is the, he alone is the one deserving of all creation's adoration and praise. But how? How can God's righteousness now be revealed apart from the law? If God's standard for his righteousness is the law, if God's perfect holiness and righteousness and justice is the law, how can it be revealed apart from that law? What tells us in verse 22 that righteousness comes through faith in Christ for all who believe. This is a new aspect of God's righteousness. That God's righteousness here is an aspect of his character that moves him to bring sinners into right relationship with him. Because we do not have a righteousness of our own. The Bible tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. But God is offering his righteousness to us for those who believe. All people, all nations, all languages, all political views, young, old, who have faith in Christ will receive the righteousness of God. Jump with me down to verse 26. We'll jump back into the meat of this passage in just a minute, but just jump with me to verse 26. 
So it was, meaning that Christ's death for sin, that was in order to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we know based on God's righteousness that God is just, that God is utterly holy and just so that the penalty demanded by the law for sin can never be removed. In order for God to maintain his justice and his righteousness, the penalty towards sin can never be removed. But God is also the justifier, meaning that he can provide the payment for the penalty of sin. He doesn't remove the penalty from the law, but he satisfies it by paying it through Christ. So, G- so God is both just and the justifier, meaning that God is the one who provides the means of justification and declares us people in right standing before him through Christ. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. He's the one who, who practices justice, but he's also the one that gives himself as the lamb, as the sacrifice of God. This is, a, this is the picture of the gospel that we have here, that God is both justice and he's wrathful towards sin and his hatred towards sin. But God is also gracious and loving and merciful toward his people by sending Jesus for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that, we, that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And in order for, for, for us to be made right with God, we must be justified by God. So point one, that we receive a righteousness from God, and now we, we are justified by God. Look at me at verse, starting in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here goes Paul again, talking about our sin and shame before God. Paul has not had enough. No, Paul is adamant about us understanding and seeing and having a sweetness toward the gospel. And he wants to remind us of where we've been and where we're going so we've got, to, we've got to know and we've got to recognize, we've got to believe that we have sinned before holy God and we've all fallen short of his glory, that we have rebelled against God and we are separated from God. As Mark mentioned last week, that it's not that, that we have sinned or done something wrong. It's the fact that in the womb, we were separated from God because of the curse of sin. So we've rebelled against God. We are separated from God and we are dead without God. But don't stop there. Don't stop there. Get your amens and hallelujahs ready because the good news is coming. That for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. That's right. Amen. We are justified. We are declared not guilty. But we are declared righteous by a divine judge. It's only, this, this can only happen by God's grace and unmerited favor toward us. See, in justification, God takes his righteousness and he counts it towards the sinner's account. For those who believe and trust in Christ, Christ's righteousness is then put into the believer's account. And this is done through redemption. 
That we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is to, to buy something back or to restore it. Christ purchased our life through his death, similarly to paying a ransom to set a prisoner free. Another example is that Christ redeemed our life by paying the penalty for sin and death, by paying the price to set a slave free from his master. But because of man's sinfulness and his inability to bring himself to the standard of God's perfection and holiness, there's nothing that you and I can do to pay the penalty for our sin. There's no good works that we can do to appease the wrath and the judgment of God. There's no money that we can pay. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves. It is like my four-year-old wanting a motorcycle and saying, hey, dad, here's 17 cents. It's just, it's not going to cut it. We're not even on the same planet here. The redemption of a sinner can only be paid for by God, by God himself. So only a sinless savior could pay the price to redeem sinful man. So moving on to verse 25. So we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So just to recap, because I know there's a lot of big words in there. We are justified. We are made right by God's grace through the payment that Christ made on the cross by spilling his blood. In order to satisfy the wrath of God. Propitiation. So it means, it's a word that means in appeasement or to satisfy. The only propitiation that would be acceptable by God would essentially have to come from God as what we talked about a minute ago. In, in order for there to be peace with God, in order for God's justice to be maintained, in order for God's righteousness to be upheld... One of two things must happen. Either a sinner who's, who's judged before a holy God and is condemned is sentenced to, to life, eternal, eternal life separated from God forever in hell as a punishment for sin. That's option one. Option two is that God in human flesh sends his son, Jesus Christ, To give himself as a ransom for many. Jesus came and he died instead of you. We deserve to spend eternity apart from God forever. But in Christ, we have life now forever. (laughs) Romans 5 verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In the Old Testament, there was a day called the Day of Atonement. And on this Day of Atonement, the high priest would go and get two goats. One goat would be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord. The other goat would be brought into the Holy of Holies, laid upon the altar. And the high priest would then put his hand upon the head of the goat. And for the next, I imagine a long time, would begin to pray the iniquities of the nation of Israel upon the head of this goat. And in that moment, 
The people of Israel were then justified by this goat taking the sins and all the iniquities of the people onto himself. The goat would bear the weight of the sins of the people of God. And then that goat was then sent out into the wilderness to never return again. And this is known as a scapegoat. Back in verse 21, we see this. We see Paul alluding to this a little bit where he says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God coming to man. And we see that, don't we? We see that Jesus is the true goat. No pun intended. (laughs) But we are saved once and for all. When the wrath of almighty God was thrusted upon the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, all the wrath and righteous hatred that God had towards sin was poured out on his son. And on the cross, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath and drank every last drop of it. And he turned the cup over and he said, it is finished. Payment has been made. Jesus's death satisfied the wrath of God forever. If we return to what, to what Mark preached on back in Romans chapter one about this terrible exchange where man exchanged the truth about God for a lie and began to worship created things rather than the creator. In Romans chapter three, verse 25, we see the great exchange. We see God in Jesus taking our sins and, and we're receiving his righteousness This is the great exchange where we are no longer seeking after the things of this world, the created things, but we are seeking after Christ as he is giving us his righteousness. Another quote on the screen by Luther. He thinks a lot of this passage, um, but he says, all the prophets foresaw that on the cross, Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that there ever was. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and said to him, Jesus, you will become Peter, the denier. You will become Paul, the persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. You will become David, the adulterer. You will become Adam, that sinner, which did eat the apple in paradise. Luther is saying that the sins of the entire world were laid down upon the head of Christ. And the reality is, is that the only person who did not deserve to face the judgment of God faced the judgment of God. We are declared righteous. We are justified by Christ. And we, we are both made righteous and justified through faith alone. And I don't want you to check out here because this is vital Because you can know all of this stuff intellectually. You can know that you are a sinner. You can know that Christ died. You can know that Christ rose from the dead. But if you do not lay your life down out of faith for Christ, it means nothing. It means nothing. Faith is the key. That's why in the New Testament alone, it's mentioned 243 times. In Paul's letter, Paul mentions it 142 times. In the book of Romans, it's mentioned 40 times. And in this passage, 10 verses, it's mentioned eight times because it's a big deal. And the reason it's a big deal is because now the the door is open. All people, nations, languages, tribes can now obtain a right standing before a holy God through faith alone. Look Look with me at verses 27 and 28. 
then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So this is another argument that Paul brings up, similar to the the past couple weeks. So if we are justified by faith apart from the law, what good is our boasting? Well, it means nothing. It's excluded because we now live under a law of faith. Under the law of works, we had to work hard. We had to prove ourselves, not only before God, but we had to, we had to prove ourselves before man. We had, to, we had to show that we were good and right and holy. Jesus has a lot to say about that. In Luke 16, Jesus says, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What Jesus is saying here is that your goodness, your goodness to perform is an abomination before him and he hates it. That means that when we strive to to appease God or to appease man, when we're looking for God's or man's approval and we're not looking to Christ, Jesus is saying that he hates it. Well, how could you hate that? I'm trying to be a good person, trying to live a good life, trying to be a good dad or student or mother or wife. The reason he hates it is because of what we've already read. That Jesus' life was given as a ransom for us on the cross. That he died so that you would trust and believe in him through faith. Not trust on your own works. Faith is not something we add to what God has already done. Promise this is my last last Luther quote. (laughs) But Luther says... The only thing that I add to my justification is my sin, which God so graciously forgives. Isn't that truth for all of us? That the only thing that we add to this situation, to the gospel, is my sin, which God so graciously forgives. So our only response to this should be faith, which means looking to Christ who redeemed you and is calling you to trust in him through faith. Faith, what faith looks like is faith is a response, an open-handed and utterly dependent response on what Christ has already done in you. When we move from this law of works to a law of faith, This boasting that Paul was talking about, this shifts from a sinner in need of confidence before God to now a confidence in the one whom our faith is placed. So our our confidence now moves onto Christ and and not what we can do, not what we can do to appease God. And what we'll see in a minute is that, that because we move to this law of faith, does that mean that we just throw the whole law away? Paul says, no. Look with me at verse 30 and 31. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul knew that his readers would give him a hard time about this. They would say, well, if man's always been saved on the basis of faith alone, the law is useless now. And it's always been useless. And Paul says, no, no, it has not. Because as far as salvation is concerned, the gospel does not replace the law because the law was never a means of salvation. 
The law is a thermometer, not a thermostat. The law of God was God's perfect standard of righteousness and how impossible those standards are to be met by man's own power. So the reason that we uphold the law is to look to Christ, the only one who has upheld the whole law perfectly, who has been perfectly obedient, perfectly righteous. And when we look to the law, it humbles man to say, I cannot do this on my own. I need, I need someone else. I need a mediator to come who has is, who is completely accomplished this law on my behalf. Romans 3.20 tells us, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. But there is a way, church. There is a way to be justified before a holy and righteous God. And that way has been made through Christ. And so he is calling you to simply trust in him. That God's righteousness is now available to anyone and everyone who believes in the righteousness of Christ. That it has been paid for you. And what true saving faith looks like is you putting your hand out upon the head of Christ. And putting all your faith in the fact that he has been our perfect sacrifice. That he has taken our sin and death from us and given us his righteousness. Lean your weight upon, abide in, tether to, cling to, hold fast to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like what if we approached each day with the posture of God, what right do I have to stand before you? If we bring anything else to the Lord saying, God, I have, I have, I'm living a good life. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. It's an abomination before him. The only way for us to stand before a righteous God is for us to say, God, I bring nothing. I bring my sin and my shame. But apart from that, I bring the righteousness of Christ that he has given me through his death and resurrection on the cross. I love this song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus, blood, and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. So I want to ask you this morning, have you put your faith in Christ? Maybe, maybe you're, you're believing that your religiosity or your good works or your good morals will appease God. And maybe you've never experienced the transforming work of the gospel in your life. If you want to hear more about this faith, how to make Christ the Lord of your life, we'll have some elders in the back after the service that would love to talk with you about what that looks like and how to walk in this, in this faith that Christ is calling us to. But if you have put your faith in Christ, if you are trusting in his in the redemption that he has purchased for you on the cross, satisfying the wrath of God, then our only response should be rejoicing. Rejoicing in the gospel today. Rejoicing in that God's love for you is unrelated to your performance. That we should live in such a way that we are completely dependent on the finished work of Christ. Church, I I implore you to to remember the gospel. Memorize this passage. Memorize Ephesians 2. Just so that our hearts are are flowing with with the truths of the gospel that we're remembering these each day. Even the ugly parts of sin. When we look at our sin, when we look at the law and see we bring nothing before the Lord. 
I love you, church, and I'm, I'm so thankful to have just walked through this text. Thank you for the opportunity to, to soak in this over the past couple weeks. It's really been a, a joy for me. Um, let me pray for us as we close. Father, we bring nothing before you. God, when we, our righteousness is as filthy rags, but the righteousness of Christ is, is life to us, God. Lord, it is such a sweetness to our souls when we hear of the redemption that we have in Christ. Lord, may we not walk out of this room numb, but may your spirit revive our souls and show us that we have all joy and freedom in Christ, that we are no longer enslaved to this world, God, but there is a much, much greater treasure, and that is the treasure of knowing and loving Christ. So let us abide in the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Let us treasure that truth today. Lord, we love you, and we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.